they 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 people they made concessions elites made concessions and and yeah very successfully for the elites you know if you look at the sunday times list of the richest people you'll see the duke of northumberland <laughs> is up there and you know whatever it is you know so so that you know and he's been up there for a thousand years since he came over <laughs> since his ancestors came over with william the conqueror you know so so they they managed you know that 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 was a that was a good system for them you know and and the british yeah. you know, but not everyone managed to do that of course the french you know the french elites were much much less successful at doing that Hi everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in. Before we get started, I just have a few short messages. First off, don't forget to like, share and subscribe this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow and help me get on bigger and better guests. Also, don't forget you can pre-order my book, To the Moon, The GameStop Saga, right now by following the links in the description below. We've also got a few quick sponsors for the show today. Are you bored of TV? Do you like drugs but can't afford them? Are you still paying alimony? Well, maybe it's time to read How to See a Man About a Dog, The Collected Writings. Get your dose of surreal prose and poetry with this dark comedy collection. How to See a Man About a Dog is a collection of experimental short stories, powerful poems, and pulp fiction prose that will take you on a wild, hilarious, and heartbreaking journey. Surrealist short stories, memoiristic poems, and haunting jokes guide you through the wild imagination of emerging writer Samuel Knox. For the reader looking for a wholly original and experimental mixed media approach to stories, How to See a Man About a Dog is a much needed fever dream tour de force. How to See a Man About a Dog is a kaleidoscope collage made of equal parts delight and despair. Internationally selling author Samuel Knox blends sci-fi, horror, fantasy and non-fiction into a single enrapturing vision of what it means to be human in the modern age. You'll find the ebook on Kindle Unlimited and print copies at Amazon, the Book Depository, Waterstones, and most major retailers. Check out How to See a Man About a Dog now and take a journey through the human experience. It's the month of Halloween and the witching hour is upon us. It's the perfect time to try out one of the spookiest and most intriguing crime podcasts I have ever come across. How I Died is a fiction podcast with a full cast of voice actors and high-quality production value. The series follows John Spacer, who moves to the small town of Springfield, albeit a much less yellow or cheery version of The Simpsons' hometown, and is confronted with a case he's not so sure he can handle on his own. A woman found dead with her husband and child both missing. In episode one, John begins to hear the voice of the dead woman on his table, and he talks to her as he deciphers just how she might have died. No one knows about John's gift, and he has to hide it from his boss, an untrusting sheriff who is always looking over his shoulder. The first two seasons of the show are available on all podcast apps, but be warned, these stories are not for the faint-hearted. The series is for adult audiences, covering topics of murder, threats of violence, and stalking. How I Died has passed over 1 million downloads since its launch, with a vibrant community all trying to solve mysteries along with the show. So that's How I Died. Find it wherever you get your podcasts and see if you can solve the mystery before it is too late.
Links for everything will be in the description below. So check them out and then please enjoy the podcast. So uh, hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I am here with Professor James Robinson, the co-author of a book I have been raving to many, many people about over the past uh, past few months, Why Nations Fail. So James is the Richard L. Pearson Professor of Global Conflict Studies and University Professor at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. James, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, not a problem. It's a, it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you. I'm, I'm sure that many of my friends who have understood how much I've been talking about your book um, will be pleased to know that I can talk to you about it instead of droning on to them. <laughs> so the, the, first, the first question really I had was the, the books. Now, you can correct me if, if this is a poor interpretation of it, but to me, the, the, the sort of broad thesis that I took from it was that ultimately freedom as such leads to prosperity. Uh, do you think that's a fair assessment of it? And yeah, so do you think that's a, like a fair understanding of, of the thesis of the book at least? Yeah, I, th I think it is. I mean, I think since the work, you know, since the 1950s, since the work for which Robert Solow uh, got the Nobel Prize, economists have understood that what, what generates prosperity and you know, economic prosperity and high levels of living standards is innovation. You know, it's, it's creativity, it's entrepreneurship, it's new technologies, new ideas. It's, it's, it's the creativity of, of, of individuals. You know, if you think about, you know, what was it that created all this prosperity to start with in the modern world, the industrial revolution, what was the industrial revolution? Yeah, it was the invention of the steam engine and the railway and, and mechanization of, you know, factory production. It was all about new technologies. Look at what's going on in the world now with all of these digital technologies and artificial intelligence and robotics. And it's incredible by, you know, it's, it's all this genetic engineering. So, so it's technology, new ideas, creativity. Where does that come from? It comes from people. You know, it comes from people's ideas and ambitions and their projects. And, and so, so, you know, one of the key words in Why Nations Fail is this idea of like inclusive economic institutions and, and inclusive economic institutions is about creating very broad based patterns of incentives and opportunities. So you can tap into all the latent talent in your society. So I think that is freedom. You know, that is that is freedom in a, in a well-defined sense. You have to be free to follow your dreams and your ideas and your projects. And but I guess that the subtle thing in the book, the more subtle thing in the book is, you know, is that's about economics, you know, and it's about property rights or it's about markets or it's about whatever. But behind that is, you could say, is political freedom, you know, which is societies get the economies that they deserve in some sense. You know, we start we start out by comparing North Korea and South Korea or Nogales, you know, Mexico, Nogales, United States, so places that are very close to each other with very different economic institutions, very different economic outcomes. But in both of those cases, it's sort of obvious that that's, that's a consequence of political choices and, and differences in political institutions. And you could say, you could say, I mean, that's not, it's not the word we use, but you could also say, you know, if you want to have a society which has economic freedoms in the way you mentioned, you have to have political, that has to be underpinned by the right sort of political institutions, which you could call political freedom too, even though that's not what we call it. We call it inclusive political institutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I find that yeah, the use of the, the sort of 
inclusive versus extractive uh, political institutions was one that that, I, that really really uh, resonated with me, and uh, it's it's the it's a really brilliant way of putting it. And because sometimes I feel like when I'm talking about I don't know like democracy or participation in the market or or any of these concepts that that people tend to just they they're very skeptical of of even just like capitalism in general. Um, and, and most of the time I would say to people that, look, it's not capitalism as such that's the problem. It's like our system has become corrupted to an extent. And you do a really good way of like providing this um, axis by which, by which it was uh, easier to understand how useful institutions are in a nation to contributing to, I don't know, the, 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 the overall prosperity. So it's uh, whether something is encouraging uh, a society to be built or whether it's um, taking from the, the nation as a, as a whole. I find it to be, yeah, a really fantastic way of, of defining it. Um, but what would you say the difference here is between like freedom, as we've sort of mentioned, and and pluralism? Because that's a concept that comes up quite a lot. Well, I think I think pluralism is a, is a word we use to talk about the distribution of political power in society. You know, so 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 you know, if you want to have inclusive economic institutions that create these broad based opportunities and incentives, then you need to have political power broadly distributed too. So so the idea of pluralistic pluralism is just the word we use. It's maybe it's too political sciencey, but 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 it's a word that political scientists use to talk about power being very distributed and spread in society. You know, because our view is you can't have in any sustainable way an inclusive economy at the whim of some kind of dictatorship. You know, that has to be it has to be people have to be empowered. You know, they have to force the political institutions to deliver an inclusive economy. You can't have it in a sustainable way at the whim of some autocrat or President Xi, you know, or President Putin. I think world history shows that. And, you know, we try to we try to bring a lot of world history to the table to illustrate that. Mm. So how would you say that these uh, these ideas encourage um, prosperity and economic growth? Because, I mean, one thing that often often strikes me is that there is a that people make this distinction. There's like a lot of culture and art and things exported from the the sort of more developed, freer, you know, as such, like part of the world. And then people will be like, "Oh, well, they're not getting um, that. You were not seeing the artwork from the people in the tribes in in Africa, which is obviously a hundred percent true. But often I feel like the the freedom to just sort of the, the the freedom is like shown in the the different you know avenues that the culture can go down as well as like economics and politics but how do you think that the freedom plays into is it just innovation and creativity or is there more like a, a psychological aspect to people being free that allows them to innovate and be creative well, that, you know, that's a deep, that's a deep question, I think. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, I mean, I think, you know, you do see an awful lot of artistic and cultural creativity, you know, associated with the rise of capitalism and the kind of technological innovation, you know, we're talking about. I mean, who is it that, you know, it's like, 
you know, the, 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 it's the places that are prosperous in the world, like the United States or Britain or, you know, France or whatever, that dominate modern world culture as well, it seems to me. So, so I mean, I, you know, I think the culture, we, we try to bring a lot of evidence to the table to say, you know, there's, there's not really a cultural explanation for why North Korea is so poor and South Korea is so much richer. You know, that's obviously to do with these institutions that we're talking about. There's not a cultural explanation for why, you know, Bill Gates did what he did and Carlos Slim in Mexico did what he did, you know. But but I do think, you know, there's there may be something to be said for, obviously there are cultural differences in the world, you know, and it could be, you know, there's deep cultural differences in, you know, in if you look at China compared to, Western countries, or look at Afghanistan, you know, in some sense, the reason that the Western project to transform institutions in Afghanistan failed so miserably is because because the cultural context is extremely different, you know, from, 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 you know, from, from the cultural context in, in wet in the West, you know, and in some sense, you could say, I mean, a famous argument would be, we don't talk much about it in the book is that what's distinct about Europe and North America, or, you know, is that, Somehow the economy and economic incentives and, 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 you know, and capitalism detached itself from society and social institutions and it disentangled itself from religion and other aspects of society. And in other parts of the world, those things are all kind of enmeshed together, you know, so it's much more difficult, for example, in, in many parts of Africa, you know, I actually work a lot in Africa. It's much more difficult to think of a sort of separate economic sphere, which is disentangled from politics or social life or whatever, whereas somehow, you know, maybe this is the enlightenment or it's kind of modernity disentangled this thing called the economy. And that that's definitely associated, at least, you know, historically with this emergence of capitalism and innovation. And, uh, you know, so I, that's, a, you know, you're, you're raising an enormously complicated issue there, you know, <laughs> think, and it's something I, I do think about it's, and we mostly try to avoid that in Why Nations Fail by kind of looking at things where we could say, oh, this is, it can't be culture really explaining this. You know, the North and South Korea, it's the same culture, right? You know, and look at the Japanese. You know, if you've ever been in Japan, Japan is a sort of fascinating place because they actually managed to create a modern economy while preserving many of their historical, you know, cultural attributes or, 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 or kind of norms and, and patterns of behavior. So, so I think... I think this is not well studied in social science. You know, how, I think we have to recognize that there are these cultural differences in the world. There mm. are these hypotheses along the lines I'm kind of discussing. But I think we also have to recognize that we don't really understand that very well. We don't really understand, you know, why could, why could the Japanese do what they did, you know, and why couldn't they do that in Afghanistan, you know, or in another part of the world? And I, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. That's a very hard question you know uh, i don't know you you asked I, i'm not sure i answered your question properly but you raised so many issues there yeah sorry i have a habit of doing that i'm trying to get better at it <laughs> um i i yeah I, I get like one hour so i tend to try and cram as much into it as possible <laughs> so one of the you you've pointed out there something that i really really enjoyed in the book actually was was having the the the, the fact that you'd pointed out that there is no like underlying culture that sort of means that you know things will like countries will become freer and more prosperous and you you, you sort of outline a little bit that it's not a, a cultural thing it's uh it's about decisions that are made in that 
in the time that they are made that sort of echo down history, echo down through history. Um, and essentially, I was wondering if you if you get any sense that there's some way of sort of trying to tip nations towards falling into, say, the virtuous cycle rather than the vicious cycle? Is there something that you've noticed that sort of tends to characterize the societies that fall into the vicious cycle as opposed to the virtuous cycle? Or is it just the sort of draw of history? Yeah, I mean, we use that terminology to emphasize that, you know, in some sense, when, when societies get organized in particular ways, that tends to be very persistent, you know, that once a society gets organized with these inclusive economic and inclusive political institutions, then there's many sort of feedback loops, if you like, there's many mechanisms which lead those two things to persist. But, 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 you know, so that's the, the virtuous circle, but, but there's also this vicious circle, which is that if you're in a society with extractive economic institutions and extractive political institutions, that's also difficult to get out of because those two things mutually reinforce each other so so you know what is it that that you know what what was it what was you know what would lead you from you're asking you know what 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 generalizations can you make about the circumstances under which you exit from extractive institutions to to inclusive institutions and i think we you know we can say something about that because because you know really every part of the world you know like britain for instance that now has pretty inclusive institutions by world historical standards in the past had extractive institutions and and i you know the way we tell that story about 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 britain about the emergence of inclusive institutions in britain is that you know it's really some kind of shock or systemic change, you know, to, you know, in, in the British case, I think it had a lot to do with the discovery of the Americas, the kind of expansion of trade, the development of this sort of mercantile class that was sort of wealthy, you know, educated, very unhappy with the status quo, you know, of extractive institutions. So, so that led to conflict, you know, it's, it's a, this, th these institutional changes tend to be very conflictual, you know, uh, and, you know, think about, in, you know, think about the collapse of colonialism or think about the rise of democracy all over the Western world. You know, in the British case, you know, uh, that, that there was there was the Peterloo riot, you know, there were the suffragettes. There was, you know, this was a conflictual process. So so I think that that in the British case, you see there's this there's this kind of tectonic shift in in the distribution of income and kind of power. And that disrupts the initial equilibrium. It disrupts its extractive institutions. But but then you could sort of say, and this is the subtle part, well, you, you see many things like that, but then one one type of extractive society just reproduce, you know, replaces the old one. That that's something we call the iron law of oligarchy. That's an idea in sociology whereby, you know, you see this in all, all the time in Latin America, you know, whereby there's a very corrupt, you know, it's happening right this moment in El Salvador, you know, there's a very corrupt, sort of ineffectual system in place. And it gets removed from power by a popular uprising, but it gets replaced by a by a new, very extractive, corrupt system. You know, uh, so so why didn't that happen in Britain, for instance, in the Glorious Revolution in 1688? This is the this is the, the, the thing we talk about a lot. I think you know that's that's you know that's really to do with what we call the broad coalition, the existence of a broad coalition. You know that when 
people got together and they fought against the monarchy in 1688, you know, against James II. It was really a lot of people, you know, it was, it was, yeah, there were these mercantile groups, but there were landowners, there were, there were all artisans, there were all sorts of people. So it was what we call a broad coalition. At the start of the book, we also, in the preface, we talk about the Arab Spring. Uh, you know, it, that may mm -hmm. need up, updating a bit. But one thing we got right was, you know, if you look at the difference between Tunisia and Egypt, you know, why is the transition in Tunisia so much more successful? It's exactly because there was a broad coalition. There were women's groups, there were trade unions, civil society was much more pluralistic, you know, to go back to that word you were mentioning earlier. In Egypt, it was much more narrowly elite, kind of Western educated base in Cairo. You know, it wasn't the same broad coalition that you get in Tunisia. So, 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 so I think that's the type of generalization that we have, you know, but, 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 you know, one <laughs> that, that also raises lots of questions, you know, about where does this broad coalition come from? And I, you know, one thing that I've been studying a lot, uh, you know, more than we used to in the past is kind of ideas, you know, because in some sense, like the history of ideas or philosophical ideas, you know, it's not a coincidence that John Locke's uh, second treatise of government you know, was written about the time of the glorious revolution and Locke kind of gave people a way of thinking about what was the problem with the existing extractive political institutions and how could you reorganize them in a way which was more inclusive that's, that's not the word he used I'm just putting words into John Locke's mouth and I, I think having that vision of a kind of alternative way of doing things was probably very powerful in, in creating this broad coalition. So that's something that we've been thinking about quite a lot. There's a kind of intellectual revolution at the same time as there's all this economic change. And mm. yeah, that's probably plays an important role. You think of the French revolution or the American revolution or the Russian revolution for heaven's sake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All fantastic examples of that, that actually. Um, do you think that's then to do with uh, like an educated like a certain mass of like educated groups of people in the society to like a certain level where they can kind of come together and philosophize and, and discuss, you know, the ideals of democracy. Like, do you think, do you think those, that, that sort of is part and parcel of a, a country becoming more inclusive as it like becomes a little more prosperous, then people get a little more educated and, um, then you end up with, yeah, so you get the chattering classes as such who, who sort of think about this, you know, but they've got universities perhaps more because there's more money to invest or do you think that has to come first or is this just sort of one of those things that goes in with the mix? <laughs> I, th I think it probably goes in with the mix. I think it probably helps, you know, but, but I think, you know, if you think about the Bolshevik revolution, the Bolshevik revolution, you know, that's a great example of what I was calling the iron law of oligarchy, you know, where one extractive regime replaces another extractive regime. And I think in our, using our terminology, the reason that happened is precisely because there was no broad coalition. It was a kind of coup d'etat by a narrow, you know, new elite, the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks or whatever. So, so I think what you see in the Glorious Revolution is, yeah, there were, you know, there was John Locke and there were, you know, there were educated people and articulate people, but it was genuinely popular also. There were things that brought people together, you know, antagonism against the way the existing system worked that kind of penetrated everyone's lives. So, so, so I think, I think what you're describing helps. But I think that's probably not the crucial thing, or it's not the crucial thing for generating kind of really inclusive change. 
Okay. Um, one of the things I managed to find a quote I was looking for there um, about this sort of cycle of the, the virtuous cycle, at least anyway, um, said reforms were granted because the elite thought that reform was the only way to secure the continuation of their rule, albeit in a somewhat lessened form, um, which it really is great quote. First off, I'm not sure if that was you or your, your co-author, um, Darren, <laughs> but it it made me think we never, quite we a never lot. Go there. Like we jo we jointly <laughs> own everything. That's that's our that's our view. Like Lennon and McCartney. <laughs> exactly. I like that model, yeah. Uh well it makes it makes you take you makes you both push the other for the best kind of work, I guess. Because you're both yeah, of your like, name you know, is gonna go what on. We're referring it. to is this that's this sort of reformist model, you know, this British model of a reformist model you know that that the british that's exactly that's how they kind of managed it you know they 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 people they made concessions elites made concessions and and yeah very successfully for the elites you know if you look at the sunday times list of the richest people you'll see the duke of northumberland <laughs> is up there and you know whatever it is you know so so that you know and he's been up there for a thousand years since he came over <laughs> since his ancestors came over with william the conqueror you know <laughs> so, so they, they managed, you know, that, that, that was a, that was a good system for them, you know, and, and the British, yeah. you know, but not everyone managed to do that. Of course, the French, you know, the French elites were much, much less successful at doing that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess what well, we could, we could spend forever speculating as to why that was. Um, but the, 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 the thing that it really made me think about is whether there is, um, because, so Britain, along with other nations at, at least, went through this cycle of, of moving towards a more and more inclusive um, economic and political institutions as the Industrial Revolution happened and like all the way through to, to you know, the modern day. Um, I, however, have seen and read quite a lot of, of work that would suggest, and they, they used the word extractive before I'd heard you used it, you use it. So it was, it was really interesting. I'd read the work of, um, Nicholas Shackson, who wrote about the, the size of the financial industry as a, um, a curse as much like a resource curse, um, would work. Um, I, I, I don't want to spend forever going into the thesis, but essentially, um, a lot, uh, quite a few commentators or, or economic economists, journalists have suggested that quite a lot of the modern institutions of, of nations like Britain and America have become far more extractive over the past 30 to 40 years. Now, obviously, we're still in a much better position than we were a hundred years ago. Um, but I was wondering if you saw any credence in the idea that Britain is shifting from a virtuous circle towards um, a vicious circle of more extractive institutions, or is that just all of us crybaby snowflakes that have never seen real adversity? <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's an in, it's an important it's an important set of issues to think about. I my my view is. There is some evidence of that, you know, I mean, there's a lot of evidence in the United States of, you know, increasing monopoly power and, you know, and there's been sort of stag, you know, the average Americans wages have been purchasing power of their wages have been stagnating for the last 30 years where, where, where all these billionaires have appeared, you know, and, and that, you know, you've seen that before in the United States history, you saw that after the civil war, this so-called, you know, all these robber barons, the so-called gilded age, Mm -hmm. Rockefeller, all of these people, Vanderbilt. So it's not like that's the first time that it's happened under capitalism. But I, I do think there is, you know, I do think there is evidence of 
more extractive institutions in some dimensions. I, I would say, you know, it's pretty small relative to the difference between an inclusive and extractive society. You know, I, I you know, most, most of my work is in developing countries, you know, and so I just spent a month in Nigeria, for example, this summer. So after you spent a month in Nigeria, you know, the idea that there's some radical Paul sitting over the British economy is a, is a little bit much to take, actually. Uh, you know, they, that, that, you know but, but, but I think that's definitely a concern. I mean, one thing we point out in Why Nations Fail is that, you know, there's, there's, there are societies, there's many societies in history that went off the rails. You know, you can revert from extractive to inclusive institutions. There's nothing inevitable about the success of, of, of Britain or Western Europe or the United States. And, and that, that's for sure. So I think that is important to think about. And I think, you know, the, the crucial thing is just to look at, you know, where, where is all this wealth coming from? You know, do you still see innovation? Do you still see creativity? And, and I think the answer to that is yes, actually. You know, most of this enormous wealth is being driven exactly by entrepreneurship, by new technologies, by, you know, by the spread of the Internet. You know, why are these people so rich? Well, because of globalization, because because Zuckerberg can, because everybody in the world, you know, is looking at Facebook and Amazon can operate on this enormous scale because of modern technology. So, 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 I, I think that's something to be concerned about for sure. Um, but I, I don't think there's definitive proof that that you know, yeah, the institutions, some of the institutions are becoming more extractive. But I wouldn't say that it's on such a scale that, you know, we should really start talking about, you know, Western societies or North America as being extractive, honestly. Okay, that's an interesting perspective. I mean, I talked to quite a lot of um, folks that would be considered probably quite radical by some folks. Um, so it's it's interesting to hear a sort of more measured uh, answer to that question. If, if uh, for, I had, um, for example, Paul Mason on the show, The Economist. Um, and he is, yeah, quite keen to tear down capitalism and the, the structures that we have um, in favor of something new. And I had the discussion with him that it, it's maybe not the best idea because tearing things down often leads to, yeah, worse things being put in their place, <laughs> unless you've thought it through a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I would think about the politics of that. You know, I, you know, I think that I think it's sort of undeniable that that you know what you're calling you know, what we're talking about as capitalism is associated with enormous improvements in living standards you know in the last 200 years and in some sense you know the problem in a place like Nigeria you could say is that you know capitalism hasn't really spread to Nigeria in the in the in the way that it flourishes in in the western world and you know and there's lots of institutional and political reasons for that i would say um you know, could, could, can you imagine, you know, creating prosperity with alternative institutions? I, I, think, I think you can imagine it. It just hasn't happened in world history so far. You know, in economics, there's a lot of discussion of this going all the way back to the 1930s, you know, about could central planning generate the same level of prosperity as a market economy? So it's a very hot kind of intellectual debate for almost 100 years in economic theory. But I'm, I'm a sort of British empiricist, you know, so, so, so I, you know, you could show it to me in, in theory, but I'd like to know if it actually ever happened in practice. So I think one should be a little cautious in, in, in kind of, I mean, I think it is an interesting moment, you know, in world history, you know, it is, 
true at the moment. Like, think about the 19th century. I mean, this is actually something Asimoglu and I were discussing the other week, which is, think about the oh, 19th century. you stay in century, touch? That's spread of, huh? You stay in touch. That's cool. Oh, After no, no, we're, the very, book we're, we're very good friends. Yeah, we're always talking. Oh, that's cool. We have all many research. We do lots of research projects, like little things. You know, we're, you're talking about the big things, but we do little nerdy scientific things as well. But, you know, think about the 19th century. You know, think about capitalism, you know, factory system, markets, the Industrial Revolution. Like, at the same time, what do you have? Like, the communism, anarchism, you know, like, fascism. You know, you have these massive kind of intellectual trends going off in different directions, somehow as a result of the sort of convulsions that are created in society. And I wonder if the same thing is not about to happen again, you know, that... And, you know, maybe that is, you know, like that is indicative of the sort of, you know, there are tectonic changes in the world created by the rise of China, you know, this sort of, you know, the increase in inequality. And so there's a sort of, that's creating an intellectual ferment uh, as as well, you know. So it's interesting you should say that about this chap. And, you know, so we were, I'm not quite sure what I think about that. You know, perhaps I'm being mm. too conservative or something with a small c <laughs> but 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 but, uh, but i you know it's it's interesting to think about yeah mm. no it's fascinating to think about i definitely think um it's 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 a discussion that i've been having a lot with people actually is that the, the, there's a lot of talk that um like capitalism is the problem that the especially amongst um, those on the left and that this is like and I, I'm always trying to say is like, look, are you sure it's capitalism and not corruption? And I was listening to an interview you'd done um, with, uh, oh, I cannot remember who it was, but you said that you felt that using the word corruption is a cop-out for most um, political scientists or um, historians and economists because uh, they don't want to talk about politics. No. Do you see, um, do you see like corruption within our system to be, like a major issue then, or do you find that it's, uh, it's more sort of day-to-day -day politics that's, co that's causing perhaps our inability to move forward on some big issues? I, yeah, I mean, you, yeah, I think, you know, you said it exactly right. We, we don't, the word corruption doesn't appear in why nations fail because, you know, that's, that's partly for academic reasons, as you say, like when, a, when an economist starts talking about corruption, it's a way of avoiding talking about politics, you know, so I'm not going to encourage that. That's, that's just economists. And, and I also, you know, working in Africa a lot, this, this, this word corruption is very complicated to sort of think about it in African context. You know, I can give you a very concrete example of, of, of that. A, a very good friend of mine, I won't tell you, I can't tell you who he is, but a very good friend of mine became a, you know, the Minister of Finance of an African country, okay? And so, you know, we this Western idea we have, you know, oh, what's corruption? Corruption is, you know, the use of public resources for private benefit, okay? But in Africa, you know, but that's a very individualistic way of looking at things. In Africa, you know, people are very embedded in groups, in social networks, in with kinship, obligations, and, you know, it's a much more collectivist African societies are much more tend to be much more collectivist than Western society with this sort of individual individualism and kind of, you know, so, so, you know, so when you become powerful, you become a minister, you know, you're, you're under all these obligate, you're under all these obligations to use your, these, you know, to use this opportunity to further the interests of 
people to whom you're connected to. So in some sense, the morality is like the reverse. You know, in, in, in the Western world, you know, if somebody like that uses public resources for, for you know, for their relatives, that would be mm -hmm. morally unacceptable. But in mm -hmm. Africa, in many contexts, it's actually the opposite is morally unacceptable. It's morally unacceptable not to use your position to further the interests of your social network. So I, I think that's that's the reality of it. You know, so that's another reason why I don't like society's organized in a different way. And I think we have to understand that. So so berating, you know, these Africans for corruption is just not understanding the logic of the the logic of the situation. I, you know, I, I don't know, like compared to where I, you know, not to say that there isn't, there isn't corruption and going on and, you know, whatever I, I, there is. I, I'm not sure that's a big thing, honestly, though, you know, to me and the way we think about it is that's a symptom, you know, it's, it's a symptom of institutional problems. It's not really the cause, you know, so when I see someone saying, oh, there's corruption, you know, like the United States are just extraditing President Toledo back to Peru, you know, because he's been accused of taking bribes from this Brazilian company Odebrecht. Okay, that's corruption. You know, basically, mm. he took a back hat, you know, he put some money in his pocket, you know, in order to give these contracts to Odebrecht. Mm. Okay, but mm. is that the problem? No, it's a symptom of the problem. It's a symptom of institutional problems in Peru, if you want my, that's the way we think that you should think about that. So, you know, is there corruption in, there's corruption everywhere. There's lots of corruption in Chicago, you know, there's, there's corruption in Britain probably, but I would say it's very small scale compared to the type of corruption you see in Peru, you know, or the type of corruption you see in African countries, you know, modulo, you know, to this, I think it's difficult to interpret, you know, I would say in Africa. So that's, so there's many reasons I don't like talking about corruption, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I, I kind of get what you're, what you're getting at here. I mean, I guess the one thing I would say is that, um, in America, more so even than Britain, um, that kind of donation is just given to a super PAC instead of a backhander. Um, they've kind of legalized the ability yeah. to give quite hefty sums of money. And as long as it's not given in a direct pay for play, scenario they've kind of they've legalized the edges of that in in such that it's not it's not legally wrong but perhaps more morally in a in a sense but even then they don't feel bad because it's not illegal um i'd, I'd say that's probably the 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 situation we've got but i want to get to this this idea that you've said it's a symptom so are you suggesting that for example um a politician who had been elected by um, constituents who could very easily eject him at the next election if he behaves uh, improperly, uh, a court system that will properly prosecute him and um, a media that will report upon it accurately are the things that would in a, in a, an ideal and like, you know, in, a, in the, the theoretically, you know, good democratic system be all the checks that would stop that happening. And that's why it's a symptom. Yeah, I think transparency also, you know, I think what you're describing in the US is, is a big problem. You know, it's a big problem in terms of the function of the political, the function of the political system, but it's all kind of out in the open. You know, it's very transparent. It might not be good, but at least it's transparent, you know, and, and if it's transparent, you can do something about it. You know, the media can publicize it. People can become aware of it. You know, I'll, get, I'll give you a great example, going back to Peru, you know, when, when Pre President Fujimori was in power, he had a kind of 
his man called Monte, Vladimiro Montesinos, who was this sort of like, he was the guy who like managed the dictatorship. And Montesinos bribed everybody. He bribed congressmen, he bribed, you know, Supreme Court justices, you know, he, but, but the real action was the TV stations. You know, you could buy a congressperson for like $5,000 a month. You could buy a Supreme Court justice for $20,000 a month. To buy a TV station cost a million dollars a month, okay? Which, so that's where the, that's what they were really worried about is the media shining a light on, all, you know, all the things they were doing, you know? So I think that you're right. I mean, I completely agree with you. I'm just saying that transparency is incredibly important. And, you know, the, 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 exactly what you're saying, these institutions of accountability, checks and balances, the judicial system, you know, he was bribing the judicial system and to make sure he got away with it and President Fujimori got all the decisions he wanted, he had to completely muzzle all of the media. And in fact, he was ratted out by the one uh, TV station that he didn't bother bribing because he thought it was just like for rich kind of limenios, like people in Lima and upper class, it was all like <laughs> arts and culture and like no, no real people watch that. So he didn't need to bribe that. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic. The one he didn't bother with. Yeah. They ratted yeah. them out. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, uh, yeah, you can, you can forget about that one little station. And if they're providing good coverage, I, the, I think it's, this is what, why the, the, the free market can be great in, in, in journalism, at least that, you know, um, as long as there's lots of people saying lots of different things, eventually, theoretically, <laughs> the truth will, you'll rise to the top and the good journalism will, will, uh, succeed i think we're in a weird situation with that with the internet but we'll power through hopefully yeah <laughs> but um one of the things i wanted to come back to actually was um this this concept that you talk about in the book and you mentioned earlier the the iron law of oligarchy um so um i think it's it's quite quite real that you it's that it kind of feeds into what I was saying earlier about how, you know, we have to be careful if we want to tear down the system because often then what who, the incoming people do is just usurp the structures of power that existed there before. And I guess that's basically um, the, in the, the iron law, of, uh, iron law of oligarchy. Do you think that that applies to just all political systems in, in terms of like, for example, um, Maybe you can give like a better example than this, but one that sprung to mind while you were talking was just that I've been thinking a lot about how the the norms that Donald Trump broke have now been sort of, it means that Biden can, Joe Biden can get away with a lot of the things that he pre, like perhaps Barack Obama wouldn't have been able to um, in terms of like his, his rhetoric and sort of just different ways he's going about things that that trump kind of broke a lot of the norms and therefore it's very difficult to get them back once they're gone mm. do you think that that that, that there's like a, a similarity there in how all our political systems function i don't know i mean that's a very interesting example i you know i think i think we don't know the answer to that i i don't think we're going to know the answer to that until trump disappears you know i think many republicans are basically playing this game of Oh, Trump is powerful. He's going to get back on Twitter. There's all these people who love him. We have to kind of, that's happening. we have to stay on his side, you know, so all this business of, oh, he, you know, Trump really won the election. Do you honestly think like any Republican Congress people believe that, you know, maybe two or three of them do, but they're just saying that because they don't want Trump to go after them. I, I think, I think, I think we're going to see something radically different when Trump, you know, if he doesn't run, I mean, he's an old guy, you know, so, so, and, 
he's not going to be replaced by any of his children. I don't think there's any chance of that happening. So, so no. I think, you know, I think it's a very interesting issue. Well, you know, here's another, you know, example, um, which I guess is a good example, which is, you know, before he was elected, Biden was talking about, you know, changing the constitution and the Supreme Court. There's all these conservative justices, you know, do we want to change? He's set up some working group, which actually has one of my colleagues here in it, you know, oh, really? <laughs> kind of examine. He's not talking about that anymore. That's, that's disappeared off the table, it seems to me, like this more sort of, you know, Trump, Trump has eroded all these institutions. Now it's kind of everything's fair game. You know, we can rip up anything that's like not in our interest. And look at this fil the filibuster also, you know, mm -hmm. the Democrats would just love to get rid of that. They're not until, doing it. Until they know? lose so, so Congress. I, think, I mean, I think that's, I mean, I think like what you're, you know, you're raising the thousand and one dollar question about this country at the moment. But so far, you know, thing, I'm being, things look pretty pretty good from that perspective you know uh, i mean there's many things that are not very good in this country but but i think the on the issue of has trump undermined more broadly the kind of commitment to these norms mm. my sense at the moment is no there are some people pretending that but i think we'll see something very different when trump disappears Hmm. I mean, I kind of feel like we're seeing a similar thing in the Conservative Party or, well, just, I would say the UK government, but look, we've had the same one for 10 or 11 years. Again, perhaps you, perhaps you disagree or you can sort of counter this, but I feel like we're seeing the same thing in the sort of, we think we're watching an erosion of the role of Parliament in legislating in a way um, that sort of started in the Brexit process with them not getting a lot of uh, time to debate issues and um, has, has seems to have carried on through through the the pandemic and the way we seem to try and make laws. Like they tried to throw th push through the the policing bill, for example, and then it's yeah. sort of shelved and just things like that seem to be very. We, we seem to have got to a point where we, we sort of rush things through, and it seems to be like again in, in the same way undermining things. I'm not sure I have I have much of a sense of that. I mean, my you know, many people ask me, oh, is Brexit, you know, is this like Trump? And I always say no. The answer is no. You know, I mean, I think Brexit was a terrible thing, extremely unfortunate socially, culturally, economically for for, for, for Britain, you know, but but I think it's a legitimate political issue in some sense, you know, and, 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 and people have the right to, de to decide on that, you know, uh, and, and, you know, I may not like the outcome, but that's democracy, you know, so, 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 you know, but I, so, so I think that's very different from the type of attack on institutions that Trump launched, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I don't see anything quite like that. You know, I always, I always like, you know, I, I work a lot in Latin America and I always, I remember, when the you know when the when the referendum came out you know and the and the and you know the brexiteers had won and then that was that was boris johnson's moment you know that was his moment that was his chavez moment and he disappeared for three days he was so like blown away you know that you know he couldn't believe what he'd done and why 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 was it not his chavez or his peron moment well mm. because he's too He's too involved in the system. You know, he went to Eton, he went to Oxbridge. He's, you know, he's too vested in the norms and the system. And the, he's not an outsider the way Chavez or Perón were or any of mm. these Latin American kind of neo-autocrats. And, and so, so I, I kind of think, I, I understand what you're saying about the police bill and things like that. And I don't want to belittle, you know, this concentration of authority in the state and, and erosion of, 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 
of of you know of democratic practices. But again, I guess I would say my general sense is that's pretty small compared to what Trump tried to unleash on this country. Uh, but I, you know, like if you read the the the, the federal, you know, if you read when James Madison and all these people were writing the Constitution, if you read Madison's notes of the Constitutional Convention. This is exactly what they expected to happen. You know, you don't design these institutions to have, you know, what to have like what's it Madison says. You know, if men were angels, you wouldn't need a constitution. You know? But but, <laughs> yeah, but men, are, men aren't angels, you know, and you can't rely on good leadership either. You maybe the first president is going to be George Washington, and we know George Washington is like great, you know. Mm. But what comes after that? Twenty down the twenty years down the road. So I you know, I always tell people like the US Constitution and the institutions, they were designed with Trump in mind exactly that's why you have all of that stuff that's why you have federalism that's why you have all these checks and balances and i think they worked you know the fact that trump trump couldn't appoint you know these people who were counting the votes in michigan or wisconsin or georgia he couldn't he couldn't mess about with that you know that that was exactly how it was designed mm. yeah so you're saying that yeah, essentially, we've seen the institutions take on because that's a lot of something a lot of people did say is that ultimately, um, Trump wasn't able to do all the horrendous things that people said he was going to do. And it was a, in, in a way a triumph of the, the Constitution that, okay, yeah, there was some undermining of things, but that, you know, the country wasn't totally destroyed in four years, essentially, no. like he didn't, he, he, you know, he didn't declare himself king and, you know, change the, the, the ruling place to his apartment in Trump Tower or <laughs> yeah you know, it's not a Latin American type transition you know you've seen in Latin America you know moments like this lead to the overthrow you know of relatively you know the replacement of something relatively inclusive with something relatively extractive and I you know, there's much more, there's much less consensus about how to do things in this country than there was when I came here as a student, you know, 35 years ago. Uh, but but th that hasn't happened yet here. I mean, it might, it might happen. <laughs> it might happen. But, 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 you know, everything's possible in, you know, everything mm. happens in human history. So, so, so I don't think there's any grounds for being complacent, but mm. it hasn't happened yet. Um, but I, I must say it was a very unpleasant four years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad I was over here. It's much nicer. Uh, <laughs> although, well, we have our own time. We have, we have our own fights in Northern Ireland, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the last thing I kind of want to, I, I would like to ask you about is, is both a sort of something we touched on there uh, and something that I'm sort of looking at forwards in the future is that uh, I feel like we're in a moment that, as you said, things could go a lot of ways. Um, that there's a lot of, I think that the, and again, you can correct me on any of these things if you think I've, I've misinterpreted like the consequences of it or the, what it means. But I think that the, the rising levels of, of inequality has, and in my estimation, at least a slightly more extractive trend from a lot of mm -hmm. our institutions. Um, and, and I don't even know if I would call the failure of some of them extractive, but they've, they failed to do the functions, at least in my mind, that they were designed to do. And I'm attempting to like imagine how we like basically do like a constitutional convention they would have in America or I don't know what form it would take in Britain to, to kind of renew things in a way. Um, because I feel like we're sliding down a direction that doesn't end well, um, yeah. with, um, things that yeah you you'd mentioned you're you're not like 
particularly concerned about the undermining of of you know um, like sort of some democratic rights of protest um but like for me i'm at least concerned about mm. it like that's just me personally i don't like mm -hmm. the the clampdown on things like protest i don't like the censoring of people online um i just i, I don't think they're good ideas generally um which I've, i don't want to get into that but yeah. uh, essentially like do you do you have like any sense of how how or is there an example in history of where a, a country has sort of sat down and gone right okay we're going the wrong way people let's let's you know talk about this and make sure we're heading in a prosperous yeah. pluralistic direction <laughs> I think, no, that definitely has happened in history. I mean, it's happened, you know, in some sense, and we, we talk about this not in Why Nations Fail, but in our in our more recent book, The Narrow Corridor, which is that, you know, if you look at Scandinavia, look, if you look at Norway and Sweden, you know, we think of Norway and Sweden as this kind of egalitarian, cuddly, kind of redistributive, you know, equal societies. But actually, if you go back to the 1920s, there was an enormous amount of conflict. Yeah, there was almost a communist revolution in Sweden in 1919. You know, there was a really? huge amount of labor disputes, strikes, violence, you know, like that, that, that in the 19th, the Great Depression comes, unemployment goes through the roof. You know, that harmony that you see in Scandinavia, for example, is basically kind of manufactured, you know, because people came together in the 1930s and they sort of said, you know, this society spinning out of control. You know, the Nazis were flourishing, Stalin. You know, they looked around and they thought, you know, my gosh, you know, this is a very scary position we're in here. And, and they got together and that they created social democracy, you know, the business interests, labor unions, you know. That, that, so I think that's exactly, that's a great example of, of, um, of what, what you're talking about. Uh, and you know, you see other examples, other examples of that. Maybe not quite so successful, <laughs> successful as that example, but it, but, but it does happen. Even the U.S. Constitution, you know, there were an enormous differences between these slave owners, you know, and people from the North. It was a huge bone of contention. Uh, the presence of slavery, people were like absolutely adamantly opposed to slavery. Like Hamilton, for example, Alexander Hamilton. The other, you know, the others were big slave owners, like Madison himself. Uh, and, and, you know, and Jefferson and they, you know, and they thought this was a violation of property rights to talk about abolishing slavery. So that that was a pretty big source of, of, of kind of co conflict at the time of the U.S. Constitution. They found a way they found a way of reconciling, reconciling that. I think you see the Indian Constitution, you know, at the time of the independence of India. Again, that's, mm, a, that's a good just idea. enormous yeah. interest to play. It's so heterogeneous, that country in India. Like, how did they find a way to kind of create that nation, India, out of all these different peoples and languages and ethnic groups and intra-economic interests? And so I think, I think it's, I think it's definitely, I think it's definitely happened. Uh, in, I think it's, it's, one could think of more examples. You know, it, it, think about South Africa also is a very interesting example. You know, the negotiation of the end of apartheid and mm. sort of reconciling the interests of the white people you know, with, with democracy, with mm. black, you know, the fact that black people are going to be running the country. And that was a piece of political genius, you know, that, mm. that, that, that Ramaphosa, you know, the current president, you know, he was head of the mine workers union. Then he was the main negotiator, you know, for the ANC. So I think, I think there are, there are good examples of that. And, and, and I think it's, it's difficult. Obviously it's very difficult, you know, people, it's difficult, but, and it takes a lot of time to do something like that. Um, uh, you know, and yeah, so there are lots, I think there are examples of that, but you know, of course there's many examples where that process sort of failed as well. You could also say, you know, where attempts to do that 
there were attempts and and they failed. So it, it, it it's difficult. I'm not sure in social science we have good generalizations about, you know, what is it that leads some of those things to those processes to be a success and others to fall apart. Mm. Yeah, that I would that that makes me slightly more hopeful for the future. I will definitely go and check out Sweden. I was not aware that they were going through the thing. I mean, I guess it was the the depression and the sort of hangover of the First World War was was Europe wide, and they managed to steer away from dangerous, yeah, ideas, revolution, yeah. civil war, whatever. I well, mean, just, well, yeah. well, yeah. Yeah, just think about Northern Ireland, you know, the Good Friday Agreement and, you know, how difficult it was to, you know, there's some sort of collective recognition that, that the society has to change and, you know, but it's very difficult to iron out the details of what that different society looks like, you know. Mm. Uh, there's kind of enormous emotional investment in different models and the history, you know, the heavy weight of history. I, I once, I invited Jonathan Powell here, who was, you know, Tony Blair's chief of staff who played a big role in the negotiations. And he, he told this fantastic story about Martin, when he first met Martin McGuinness, you know, and he was sort of blindfolded and he was taken off into Derry or whatever it was, London Derry. And, and, um, and, you know, and then he, you know, they stopped and they had tea or something, you know, in some house where Martin McGuinness is, you know, and, and then somebody asked Jonathan Powell, oh, so, you know, what did he start with? The Battle of the Boyne. And Jonathan Powell said, the Battle of the Boyne? No, it took days to get to the Battle of the Boyne. You know, it's, <laughs> that's, there's so much history and, you know, so many grievances and, you know, that have to be, recognized and discussed and you know one of my very good friends in colombia he was the chief negotiator with these marxist guerrillas in cuba you know and then that took five years and it's actually a very similar process the you know you have to understand other people's positions and you have to respect other people's positions and other people's interpretations of history and so you know it's not these are examples that show it can be done but it's not easy mm. No, that's it's it's definitely not not easy. I, I mean the the Good Friday Agreement was famously described as Sunningdale for slow learners, and I believe the Sunningdale Agreement was uh, negotiated in 1974, and it took them 24 more years to get to the Good Friday Agreement, yeah. and it was described as being basically the same. <laughs> Obviously, there were some differences, but the society itself had sort of grown tired of this conflict at that point i think was the main the main thing um so that's yeah that's interesting. you have to reconcile yourself yeah yeah mm. that's that, that's not so different from the colombian case actually also yeah you have to reconcile yourself to something that previously you know i mean the other, another thing jonathan powell said actually which is very interesting was that you know there's no success without failure you know every every success comes on top of a whole bunch of failures you know you have to learn from you learn from the failures and he gave that he, and he gave many examples in northern ireland i don't remember if he gave that example you're raising here but he, he talked about these you know you learn and that's true in colombia also there were many attempt failed attempts to negotiate with these with these marxist guerrillas and then you learn, you know, so, so, you know, you know that everyone, you know, you all learn just at a personal level, you know, you just fail so many times. Me personally, you know, you fail at so many things that have so many setbacks and you just, 
you have to learn from that and you have to kind of move on and um and uh, eventually you succeed or well, that's what i tell my students <laughs> well i'm hoping that's the case i mean yeah making this podcast has been many a setback and that's that's just me doing this that's not the you know the whole problems of a nation and all the historical things that come along with it <laughs> a pierce of perseverance uh, have you got time for one more question actually i've just re remembered one thing i was thinking about earlier that i okay. wanted to quiz you on Go for um, it. essentially uh i'm not sure how familiar you are with the idea of uh strauss high generational theory and the the fourth turning i think the name was the book the book and essentially that they they hypothesize that human societies and history has chapters that cycle through it's basically like a a, a more academic attempt to look at that old adage of um strong men make good times good times make weak men weak men make hard times hard times make strong men do you like do you give any credence to that that theory that we kind of have like cycles of history where um things will degrade and then be rebuilt um as as sort of generations build something they're proud of the next ones become cynical uh the next ones you know don't trust it and then everything falls apart and then you have to rebuild yeah not really actually i i, I don't think that's i mean i think you know the the main way we think about these dynamics is more like this vicious and virtuous circle as your you know, as we were discussing earlier, I'm not sure that I believe these cyclical theories of, 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 of world history. You know, I mean, I've been the last few years, I've spent an awful lot of time reading about Chinese history and Chinese culture. And, you know, what you see in China is that there's this sort of, I guess you could say at some, maybe they operate at different levels. You know, what I see when I look at Chinese history is this enormous continuity, you know, between the imperial state or even pre-imperial kind of philosophical revolutions with like Confucius and, and, and the kind of creation of these great classic works about the organization of Chinese society. And then how enormously persistent that is. But I guess you could say at a different level, you do see cycles, you see these collapses of the dynasties, you know, maybe we saw a new cycle with the collapse of the imperial state, a rise of communism, the kind of the disappearance of communism and the return of something much more like the imperial state than, than, the, than the communist state was. So you could sort of say, maybe it depends what level you're looking at and, and where you want to focus. And that, that could be some way of reconciling, you know, the way I tend to think about things with, with there is, you know, there are these cycles sort of going on like that. Um, but underneath it, there are these kind of, you know, there are these sort of tectonic processes. And I suppose that's just what I, i like to focus on mm, you're looking at the long arc of history rather than the course of a couple of generations well <laughs> that sounds very pretentious but but i don't mean you're pretentious i mean it, it would it would sound pretentious to me to say that's what i'm doing but it's well, just that's right somehow, i said it <laughs> that's what i that's somehow what i look for i suppose or what i i i, I tend to see yeah i mean yeah um, well, James, uh, I really, really want to thank you for your time. It's been uh, like a real, real pleasure for me to get to sort of pick your brain on a few things. Um, everybody, Why Nations Fail, uh, definitely my favorite book that I've read this year. And, and it's uh, just st stuffed full of facts, historical anecdotes, and um, some, some fantastic theory as well. Uh, so uh, is there anything you want to plug before we, we go? No, no, that, I'm, 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 it's, it's very exciting. You know, uh, 
the reason we wrote this book, you know, Professor Asimoglu and I have written many, you know, many academic scientific papers published in obscure journals, you know, kind of completely unreadable. And, you know, the reason that we wrote this book, which is, you know, thought of as a very bizarre activity for people like us, is, is exactly so that someone like you could get excited about it. So, you know, so I'm just really thrilled you know, to hear all that. And I'm really thrilled to be, to be on, on the show. Yeah. Thank you. No problem. Um, yeah, let's, uh, finish things there. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget today's sponsor, how to see a man about a dog for the reader looking for a wholly original and experimental mixed media approach to stories. How to see a man about a dog is a much needed fever dream tour de force. It combines dark comic short stories, powerful poems, and Pulp Fiction prose to create a heartbreaking and hilarious journey that readers will not soon forget. Read How to See a Man About a Dog, collected writings for free with Kindle Unlimited, or get it at major retailers everywhere. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the video. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and leave a comment for us in the comments below. Let me know what you thought and if you'd like to see more of this from the show. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time.